Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to our weekly Women Today podcast. On the programme this week we learned about the science of dieting, found out about the adoption process on the Isle of Man, were moved and inspired by the two stories of two women whose lives have been severely affected by renal health issues. And we caught up with Jo Frost, who became famous as Super Nanny, about her latest campaign to help harassed parents. But first, we ended the week with a visit from a very special guest, sporting a very special medal. Guess what, guess what, guess what? News fast in. Quick, we've got a visitor. <gasps> have you seen? He we is have got a carrying visitor. something quite special. Good afternoon, Matthew Elliott. Hello, afternoon. How are you doing? <gasps> What have you brought in to show us? Uh, I bought my gold medal from uh, the Invictus Games. Uh, Yay! Did you actually say gold medal? Yes, yes. On Women Today, we've got a gold medal sitting on the desk of Women Today. This is so exciting. For anyone that doesn't know, Matt competed in Invictus Games out in Orlando with the family out watching, and you got a gold in... Archery. Archery, Yeah, which uh, you weren't very good at eight months ago, were you? No, I wasn't, no. (laughs) Again, I picked up a bow eight months ago and uh, I wasn't very good. But uh, over time, it's just gotten easier and easier and easier. And, uh, well, I've got a goal now, so obviously I'm obviously doing something right. That's the main one. And it's so heavy as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> I've had a feel of it, the gold medal. That, absolutely fantastic. How often are you wearing it, I have to um, ask? Do you sleep in it? No, I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if I did, uh, my wife Laura would have something to say. Um, no, I don't really sleep in it. Um, we're heading off to uh, Westminster Palace. Uh, well, I am, anyway. Uh, Tuesday, with the whole, the rest of the Invictus team. Uh, to have, I believe it's lunch with uh, whoever. I don't know who we haven't lunch with yet. But somebody uh, important, possibly so, the yes, prime minister or someone, yes. maybe. It, possibly uh, wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. You have got so much going on at the moment, haven't you? And it's so exciting because you've just got this newfound thing, like the social life. You've met new people. Yeah. It's it's become a huge family for you in a way, hasn't it? It it has. Yeah, it's it's one thing I was looking forward to is uh, spending whatever amount of time with ex forces, which is unbelievable <laughs> it's just a good laugh either way i can only imagine that it didn't take time to kind of get to know each other you just literally connect and start talking immediately is that what it was like yeah pretty much me the, the, the archery team we've i've known for about a good four months so we just got on straight away and then on board playing over there you just speak to whoever if you're on the same boat and what about the competitive side of it though like you know did you really feel it was strong competition because oh, yeah. you boys surely must really just want to win uh yeah but we just well we're up against people who want to do that win 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 and uh obviously we uh, beat the canadians in the uh in the team team shoot uh and the french and the americans as well so um yeah we came out with gold bronze and silver so and what about prince harry you got to meet him Yes, I did. Yeah, I got a photograph of him about again three, four months ago. And uh, but he's he's a top bloke. He's ex forces. He's same as us. So yeah. and he loved your phone cover. Uh, he did. Yes, I've got a union uh, union flag cover on my phone. He appreciated that more than somebody's Superman phone cover. So. Did you get his number for me, like I asked? No, I didn't. No, no. <laughs> what? What? You no gold medal and no Prince Harry phone number. I think a gold medal's enough. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, huge, <laughs> huge congratulations <laughs> to you, Matt. It's fantastic. And yeah, we'll be posting a little video on our Facebook page a little bit later to show great. you that gold medal. It's great to have you. I mean, that's a massive deal. A actual gold medal at Invictus Games. That's that is just brilliant. Have we ever yeah, had I've... one from the Isle of Man before? No, I haven't. No, exactly. I've not had one. This is my very first gold medal. In fact, I think I am probably the only one in my family to actually have a gold medal in anything. Barring military medals, but gold medals, I think I'm the only one. 
well, we're well, super proud of you. It's Thank just you. brilliant. Yeah, we'll be following how you get on. And also going into next year. Sorry, exactly. the next games as well. We'll uh, be following yeah, the next all the games, way. if I get get them, it'll be Toronto uh, next year. So that'll be... Uh, Another family holiday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not so much of a holiday, it's more of a bit of, <laughs> bit of hard work. But there you go. <laughs> now, today we've been speaking with Nikki Partington, a registered dietitian from Thrive Nutrition Mentoring. Now, Nikki... Before we go any further, can you clear something up for me? What is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Uh, that's a really good question, Christy. Um, there's so many nutrition professionals out there, and you've got uh, nutritionists, nutrition therapists, diet therapists, dietitians, and I think it is quite confusing to the public to know what the difference is. Um, and basically, in the UK, registered dietitians are a regulated profession. So that therefore means that registered dietitians are really the only qualified nutrition professionals to be able to really assess and diagnose nutrition-related problems. Um, so that basically means then that dietitians are regulated by law um, and they're governed by an ethical code. So everything that dietitians do has to be evidence-based practice. It means that we've got certain competencies that we have to meet. Um, we're audited. And it's just a way of basically making sure that our work is to a high standard and that it protects the public. Um, I've got a really strong interest in eating behaviour. Um, and why is it that we do what we do when we know what we know um, and kind of looking at all of that sort of thing um, why do we eat certain things not just knowing what it is that we, we when we should eat something but often we don't do what we know we should do do you think though as a nation we are all obsessed when it comes to nutrition with just talking about weight loss Absolutely, yeah. I think we're in such a dieting culture and it's very normalised to be on a diet. Um, and yeah, we're very focused on body weight. Um, that's something that I'm really interested in. And actually, I'm, I've done a lot of reading about weight loss and that our bodies don't necessarily have to be a certain size to be healthy. And that's quite a controversial subject, um, but it's something that I'm really interested in and quite passionate about as well. And actually, that if you make healthy behaviour changes, that's what makes a really big difference to somebody's health, as opposed to losing weight. Um, and if you shift that focus away from weight loss, people who, if you give them um, sort of the compassionate approach and body respect and start really taking care of themselves, the health outcomes are better and there's lots of ways that you can measure somebody's health outcome rather than just looking at their weight. Um, so it really is, comes down to making sure that you're eating regularly and getting enough of the carbohydrate, the energy that feeds your brain. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, 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 no. You just said that word. You <laughs> said that word, carbs. We're not allowed carbs. We, we, after six especially, you're not allowed carbs. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a really interesting thing as well. And um, I've definitely seen a really big shift in the difference between people who used to be very fearful of fat and now actually people are becoming much more fearful of carbohydrate but actually the truth is that your brain can only burn glucose um, it needs carbohydrate to be able to function properly it can't burn protein it can't burn fat so you do need a certain amount of carbohydrate it's just getting the right amount and what you do with those carbs you know carbs tend to get a bad name for themselves but if you cover them in loads of cheese and really greasy oily stuff then perhaps they're not so healthy but actually carbohydrates are not a bad food for us i suppose that's the thing isn't it because you know you said at the start of the, the our chat here that you know you've obviously studied you have learned all of this you know about body science you know about the whole ins and outs of it and yet on a daily basis it seems there is a new fad whether it is 
block out the carbs whether it is only have proteins one day and then only have this the other day and and alkali this and you know acid this and how on earth are we supposed to follow things like that yeah and i think that is so confusing for the public as to looking at all of these trends that come and go and i mean yeah there, there are lots of people out there and i really enjoy looking at instagram and looking at recipe inspiration i mean i follow people like deliciously ella jamie oliver the hemsley sisters and i think i I do it because I love the ideas that they've got in terms of their meals and stuff. But would I trust them for nutrition advice? Well, personally, it's just looking at what do you want to get out of that? What do you want to get out of of using that app or um, getting those recipes? And really, then they're trying to sell you something. And I think just be cautious of people who are particularly trying to sell you something um, and have a think about their, their actual nutrition qualifications and background. OK, so are there, just to try and get some sort of like quick fixes for people here, are there three things that we should all stop eating today? I'd love to tell you that there are, but no, of course, there's not. (laughs) And the message really, like nutrition science is very complex and it is constantly evolving. But the general healthy eating principles have always stayed the same. Um, And moderation, eating everything in moderation is absolutely key. But the thing with moderation message is it's not sexy. It doesn't sell. (laughs) There's nothing fancy about it. You're not going to lose weight really rapidly. But that is it is the healthy eating message really and bringing up children um mm. you know talking about them from a nutritional point of view um what do you think the best way is to be helping our children to be brought up in the right environment with the right foods um i think one of the key things is actually not referring to food as being good food or bad food i really hate referring to foods in that kind of way because there is no such thing food doesn't have a moral value to it so i think if we can teach children about sometimes foods and treat foods then that's okay Um, and we've got everyday kind of foods but moving away from the whole body shaming and making people feel bad about themselves and teaching children that yeah they can eat anything that they want to eat Um, it's just everything in moderation it goes back to that moderation message really Um, and yeah giving them the confidence to listen to their own internal cues which when we're born we naturally have you know a baby cries when they're hungry and they turn their head away when they're full and as we get older we lose that Um, so it's just being able to let children continue with those internal cues that they naturally have i don't know i cry when i'm hungry (laughs) do you get hangry yes (laughs) i can so picture that we're encouraging parents to establish healthy bedtime routines and to understand the importance of being able to do bath book and bed um, and incorporating story time as an integral part of that bedtime routine because you know, with recent surveys being done, there are so many parents that are struggling and feeling very challenged with getting their children off to sleep soundly. And uh, as most of you know, you've seen me very successfully help families um, establish those routines. I want parents to feel um, that it's a chore, but actually as role models and examples so that we encourage our children and uh, and certainly teach them so that they can continue doing so with their own children. And what better way to bond with your own child? It's lovely. It's just the number one question I get asked all the time. You know, I'm tired and my kids don't sleep and how do I keep them in bed? And when I start to coach the parents, they say to me, oh, I feel 
I feel relaxed myself. Just, you know, by default, actually reading these lovely stories to their own children, it actually brings them down as well to a place of feeling calmer and, and soothed, you know, and there's nothing wonderful, is there, than that, that special moment there, you know, where you're connecting with the kids and you're just being, you're in that moment, uninterrupted by any kind of radio, phone going technology, you know, these iPads everywhere, you know, it's just that, it's that moment. It's going back to basics as far as I'm concerned, but also I'm dreading mm. the day that my son, as I say, he's 12, he still enjoys it. He's going to kill me for saying that on the radio, probably. Um, but I'm <laughs> dreading the day that he's going to turn around to me and say, you know what, Mum, I'm okay. I'm going to read on my own now. I mean, at 12 years old and he's really enjoying it still, um, I think you're a wonderful example of how that does continue into the teenage years and how you both share common interests. And, you know, the likely chances are now, because of what you've set down, is that you'll probably share books, you know, and you'll take a common interest, you know, as a parent and as an adult to really enjoy the children's books that he is reading or the young teenage books that he will be reading and vice versa as well. So I think there's nothing nicer than that. You know, my father and I, you know, we'll read a book and say, oh, you must try this book or we're going to read it together and I'll buy two, you know, and we can discuss it and you end up with your own family book club, you know. If you can get um, a good night's sleep at the end of it, well, it's a (laughs) win-win. Exactly. That's what we all want at the end of the day. You know, we we need to feel well rested and um, and we want to do the best you know, by our children. And, and that means that we have to, you know, implement at a young age and and make sure that we can establish these healthy bedtime routines. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I just have to ask you, what's next? I can tell you one thing after into today. It will be bath, book and bed for me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you imagine having to go through a medical procedure which can typically last around four hours up to three times a week? Well, that's generally how long hospital dialysis takes. And it's something one of our studio guests this afternoon has to live with. Alison Greenwood, thank you so much for being with us. Just tell me when you first had a medical condition, which meant you had to go on to dialysis. When did that start? Well, it was way back in my late youth, early 20s. And I suddenly became ill and I was being treated for what was thought to be a gynecological problem. And I was getting thinner and thinner and losing so much weight. And I was had no energy. I was lacking in energy and will to do things. And all of a sudden I got a phone call from the doctor from the hospital and he said, it looks to me like your kidneys aren't working properly. He said, the lab have done some tests which I didn't order. Um, and it looks to me like your kidneys may not be working properly. And I went... What? But I'm too young for that. That's an old people's thing, as I assumed it was. And is there any indication as as to why that happened, Alison? No, absolutely not. So then you started to have to go on dialysis. Well, he referred me to another doctor then, and he said, "Um, eventually you're going to need dialysis and very possibly a transplant. And it was just very matter-of-fact like that. And Really? (laughs) I had no idea what was happening. I'd never heard of kidney failure before. So it was a completely alien thing, really. I mean, how do you begin to cope with that sort of news at such a young age? You just have to sort of get used to it. That's what life is going to be from now on. So you started with dialysis, and I mentioned that it can typically take around four hours. You have to have it three times a week. You did have a transplant in 1996. Yeah. 
Can you try and put into words for us how you felt when you knew that that transplant was available? <laughs> well, I got a phone call at nine o'clock one night when I, I was actually doing home dialysis at the time and I was actually upstairs doing the dialysis and I thought, they'll either ring back or John will get up and answer the phone because it rang and it rang and it rang. And I thought, when he said, it's the transplant coordinator from Liverpool, I'm like, don't joke, it's not funny. Because I thought he was joking. And um, he said, no, I'm serious. He said, it's the transplant coordinator from Liverpool. So I went down, had to unhook everything from me, contraptions and what have you. And um, I went down and I spoke to her. And she said, we need you in Liverpool for eight o'clock in the morning. We've got a kidney for you. And it was just total disbelief that, you know, you'd waited so long for something that could be life-changing again. And it's happened. So I phoned, next thing I did was phone my boss up at work and say, um, I'll probably be back at lunchtime now because it won't match. <laughs> and sure enough, two weeks later, I came home with a matching kidney. And what did you find out about the person who donated that kidney? All I found out was he was a man in his mid-50s and he died from a brain hemorrhage. That's all they would tell me. They wouldn't tell me anymore. What was the recovery process like for you from that? Oh, it took me a long time to recover physically, really. Um, I don't know whether it was because it was psychological. I thought, if I start eating, I'm going to put weight on and become big and fat again. Or whether it was just the adjustment to having your normal life back. But life was, to all intents and purposes, pretty much back to normal for you at that point. Yeah. But then in 2011, the transplant failed. Yes, it did, yeah. How did you know that something was going wrong with it? Well, I knew it wouldn't last forever. It, it's always at the back of your mind when you go for your monthly blood tests and your checks. Is today going to be the day when it starts to show signs of failure or rejection? Because you've always got that at the back of your mind. But you try not to live every day with that worry. You try and put it to the back of your mind. Um, but in 2011, I did start to notice I was retaining fluid and things like that. And I was getting weaker generally and more tired, physically tired. So I knew there must have been a problem with it then. And, and then, of course, they said, you're going to have to go back on dialysis. How did you feel about going through that process again? Well, I was gutted, really, you know, because I thought, that's it, life's over. Because <laughs> while I'd been well, we'd we'd had holidays, we'd had days out, we'd had weekends away and things like that. You know, we just generally enjoyed life as we could. And then once they say you've got to go back on dialysis, it's over sort of thing. Could you have another transplant? Sorry? Would you be able to have another transplant? Yes. Yeah, I'm on the list again now, waiting for one. We actually actually had a false alarm last summer. Two o'clock in the morning, the phone goes, we need you in Liverpool at eight o'clock. I thought, oh, no, I've been through this before. And then we found up, phoned up an hour later and said it's been cancelled. So... It must have been absolutely devastating, Alison. And just... So there's a elation of hearing the phone go and thinking, oh, this is it. And then the letdown of having it cancelled. And just thinking about the restrictions, I guess, that it has been placed on your life since yeah. such an early age. I mean, how do you feel your life has been, I suppose, compared to, to how you felt it should have been when you were thinking about it? 
Well, you just sort of have to get used to it again. But now that you're that bit older, you've sort of done everything you wanted to do and you don't take it uh, quite so rash now. <laughs> well, you are one of the people who've started this new charity. It's called the Manx Kidney Patients Association. Also with us this afternoon is Caroline Barris. And, and Caroline, you're the secretary of uh, this new charity. And it's actually your husband who has been through dialysis and has had kidney issues. Tell us about him. Hello, Beth. Yes, thank you. Um, Adrian um, has had a, been lucky enough to have a transplant too, but in, two th- in 2003, when he um, got his transplant, um, all was good. As we just heard from Alison, you carry on life as normal. And um, we had lovely holidays and um, he was very, very well. But now, sadly, um, here we are in 2016 and he's now um, looming again for another transplant. Um, it has a massive impact on your life. Um, every day you're thinking, could today, could the phone go? Um, you take so many things for granted. Um, you wish your life away, probably, and I'm sure he does too. Um, but at the same time, we're very positive and um, you just carry on. <laughs> what would you say the impact has been on your family? You have children. Um, I think... On a day-to-day basis, um, tiredness for Adrian is is a massive thing. Um, So you start the day full of enthusiasm and by the evening, obviously, energy is waning greatly. Um, And I guess the impact on that is that um, you become, um, I think, tolerant where normally you're not tolerant (laughs) you you become you learn to be very patient and you learn you know not to speak your mind when you find things very frustrating Um, and I think that's the biggest lesson it's probably taught both of us I mean for him he he had to give up work didn't he he did yes he was um, an airline pilot and for him it meant giving up traveling around the world um, which is obviously for him been a huge impact on his life um, and his lifestyle um, you see a lot when you're travelling, you live a lot, um, and now he's here on, a, on an island, which is beautiful, but it's still not the same as, as, as the job he did. Well, Caroline and Alison, thank you both so much for being with us this afternoon. We are going to be talking more about the Manx Kidney Patients Association a little bit later, but I just wonder from your point of view, Alison, presumably this now is an organisation where people who've been through very similar things to you can, can get together. How helpful is that? Well, what we've tried to do with the organisation is to set up a support network for other patients or people coming up through the system and becoming patients. So, you know, if we've got somebody coming along and they say, well, I'm tired all the time, is that normal? Yes, it is perfectly normal. Don't be afraid to have a lie down and have a sleep. And And do we have an an idea of how many um, patients there are going through this in the island at the moment? There's 128 patients, I think it is, who are being monitored and are on dialysis. So that's the total within all the patients of coming up through the system and have had transplants. And We've got um, currently 30 people on dialysis, one on home dialysis. Um, We have 200 patients using the clinics around the island. And just as a, a, a quite a shocking statistic, we've got 10% of the island have the onset of kidney issues. That that 
that's eight and a half thousand of us islanders who are potentially going to go through the renal unit. Um, So what is wrong with the current facilities that we've got here then? The unit is not fit for purpose because when the hospital was built, the renal unit was completely missed off the plans and it we were just put in anywhere there was space so we were put in in like a corridor or somewhere that should have been used for offices and it's no good because the community office is at the end of the unit and people coming in for their blood tests and things like that and to be monitored have to walk past patients on dialysis and it's not pleasant for the patients on dialysis it's not pleasant for the people coming in to be seen. You're listening to Women Today on Manx Radio. It is 18 minutes past two and you may have heard in the news this afternoon that the Queen has been setting out laws that UK ministers will try to put in place over the next year. Um, There are big reforms for prisons with governors given powers and new satellite tags that allow weekend sentences so inmates can live at home during the week and hold down a job. And Her Majesty also mentioned a bill that will see radical preachers banned from jobs in schools or care homes. Legislation will be introduced to prevent radicalisation, tackle extremism in all its forms and promote community integration. Well, the Queen also talked about rules to allow spaceports in the UK as well as more support for driverless cars. Now, I don't know about you, Christy, but this thought of driverless cars, I mean, it's quite a nice one. You know, you could sit in the back and read a paper, not that I can read in the car anyway, but could you go in a driverless car? No, and you wouldn't read a paper. You'd still spend the entire time looking out the windows going, oh, we're going to hit something. I, I wouldn't trust it. I'd find it really difficult. And also, more than that, the other people in the driverless cars as well. Oh, where are we going? It's crazy, isn't it? But also, I'd be thinking that I'd be literally doing all the actions as it looks really good on radio doing them right now with the steering wheel. And, you know, I I'd actually, I actually enjoy driving a car. I really enjoy it. And I think it just takes the fun out of being in the car and using the steering wheel and the gear and you know I, I don't I don't think I could do it potentially I guess it could in the future do a great deal for congestion issues you know if we don't all have to have two three cars of per family if you could just whistle a driverless car to come and pick you up that'd be all right but how's that going to make any difference because you're still gonna have to go to different places yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're having a blonde moment there. No, no, because you wouldn't, you know, if you... Oh, I don't know. I said well, that, yeah. and I'm the one with the blonde hair. It yeah. would help with the nights out, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't have to have a designated driver. True. So oh, that's, that's one thing that it would help with. That is a good point. And the, but, the, but then there is also that concern. If, if something goes wrong with a driverless car, A... You know, whose fault who's is it? In, who's faulted it and who's in control? Yeah. So if you're sort of like letting the car drive for you and something malfunctions and it, for instance, the brakes fail or something or it takes off down, I'd be terrified. And garages, how are they going to change all everything that they do? And Oh, it's going to bring in so much more than just the car, isn't it? Because it's going to have to go back to college and how everyone's trained to look after. Ooh. And I suppose mm. also you have to think about the people whose jobs are driving cars for a living. So yeah. you've got taxi drivers, lorry drivers, etc. You know, what happens to them? Yeah, yeah, a lorry, driverless lorry. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. Yeah. Anyway, interesting thoughts. I think you should uh, think about should, that. A little should, bit we might more. do this as a topic and do this. I love the fact that we're talking on Wednesday about driverless cars and waiting for the text to come in.
Now, the way adoption is dealt with here in the Isle of Man is currently under review, and the Department of Health and Social Care has been asking for the public's thoughts on whether changes are needed and, if so, what form they might take. And the department's appointed Jane O'Rourke, a local consultant, to independently oversee the review process. And Jane is our studio guest this afternoon. Jane, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Now, where do you start with a review of this nature? I think that we've looked at what other jurisdictions are doing because it's a topic not just on the Isle of Man but across the world where reviews are taking place. And we've tried to assess how long it is since we reviewed our legislation. It's been quite some time. And we also tried to look at what other jurisdictions are doing to make sure that children's interests are best met. It's uh, certainly a subject that's in the the public spotlight at the moment because David Cameron's mooting some changes. I mean, what sort of effect might those have on what's happening over here? They won't have any direct effect on what's happening over here, but what's interesting for us is to see the way in which developments are taking place in other jurisdictions and some of the the tracks that are being uh, gone down in other jurisdictions. So particular, he's got a particular focus on the way in which professionals are being trained and uh, social workers, what their role is in the process, uh, what the court should be doing in the process, uh, the way in which um, schools and educationists look at how adopted children react in school situations and uh, the length of time it takes to have a child adopted. Uh, all the research points to the fact that the earlier a child is adopted, the better the outcome for the child. So what can be done to speed the system up? I'm guessing this is a subject that you only really know about if you're involved within it. How much did you know about it before you started this review? Um, not a lot, although I have a nephew who was adopted as a baby. Um, but that didn't in any way guide what I what I perceived professionally. Um, I was initially um, helping somebody to look at the legislation, so it was more of a technical review. And it became clear in talking to people about how that legislation had impacted on them that there were changes to policies and procedures that might also be considered. And then, in fact, maybe we were overlooking the experts in our midst, which I think is something that David Cameron is also saying, that the people who've been involved in the adoption process as birth parents or adopted children or adoptive parents are really the ones whose views are paramount. One of the things that I think has surprised us is the number of adult adopters who've come forward, adoptees who've come forward, and explain that the consequences of being adopted never go away. Lifelong support is necessary. And I suppose at the moment there is a tendency just to think that it it is a very child-centred issue. And and to be honest, I'd never really given much thought to those adults. Yeah, Yeah, I think we're very, very keen that everybody um, sees that the interests of the child must drive the whole process. But the fact that the child grows up and becomes an adult doesn't mean to say that its interests as a child and as an adopted child mustn't be taken into account equally. And I think for us on the Isle of Man, one of the most important things, one of the big questions for debate is, at present, we tend to try to keep Manx children on the Isle of Man to preserve their heritage and their culture. And is that the right thing to do? I suppose you're thinking of that from from the point of view that it's very easy for any relatives to get in touch with them because I was an, under the impression that most children who were adopted um, from the island would go off island. I think that used to be the case and then it was thought again, uh, it was some research done with uh, adults who'd been adopted, that they felt they'd missed out on their heritage. And with all of these decisions it's a balancing act so that if you could have a very secure, happy placement for a child sooner by having a child adopted off island, uh, which should take precedence, the speed or the heritage, loss of heritage? And I think somebody uh, that was an adult adoptee said that uh, they 
thought that it was better to get a better placement and a child could re-establish its links with its culture and heritage in adult life later on. So how many children are typically adopted on the island every year? On the island, it's a very average number, obviously it varies from year to year, but about six Manx-born children. And then there are about 15 children that come in from other jurisdictions into the island as adoptees. And when you're thinking about the the changes that might be put in place, I mean, what sort of things are we actually talking about? Well, one of the things that we're very keen to do is to make sure, as I say, that the child drives the process. It's the child's interests that are utmost importance. And uh, it's very much in the child's interest that the child is adopted speedily. So does the process actually allow for a child to be adopted speedily? It's also in the child's interest that both parents are as comfortable with the process as they can possibly be. And of course, it's going to be a very difficult process for them from start to finish. Uh, But how do we make the system less adversarial so that both parents can do this thing for their child? They can can act in their child's best interest in a way that uh, they're encouraged to do that. How do we make more people want to be adoptive parents? How do we make them come forward? It's interesting talking about the speed of the process because it's hard to imagine that it's something that could take any less time because you have to be so sure that the people who are putting themselves forward to be adoptive parents are really right for that role. Yes, and I think there's two, two, two aspects to it. One is about what's going to happen to the child, decisions made about the child, whether they're going to be placed permanently for adoption. And the other side of it is a pool of people who've been approved as being suitable as adoptive parents. And so um, I think they don't necessarily need to go in tandem. So you can have a general approval for parents as adoptive parents, and then you can have specific approval for those parents to a particular child. It's also quite a lengthy process, isn't it? If you want to, and Do you think that puts people off in any way at all? Yes, I think it does. Um, although some people have said to me that they feel it should be a lengthy process because you can't really imagine what you're going into. And so you do need to have a lot of research, a lot of training, a lot of opportunity to talk to other people who've done it. And that if you were to rush into the situation, you may well be not very well prepared for it. But equally, as with all things in life, there is that fine balance. So what we're trying to do is to find the right length of time in which a child can be determined as appropriate uh, for placement with adoption and ensure that the process isn't so speedy that prospective adopters are not discouraged. And you were saying about how we have um, certain children that come over from the UK to be adopted. Is that because of the local situation that we have here, that people tend to know each other? Yes, some people have said that the reason that they want to adopt children from the UK is they're worried about the links between birth families and adoptive families, and they think that what's going to be a difficult process, that is embracing a child into a family, a new situation, would be made more difficult by worrying about unwelcome or inappropriate contact from birth families. I wonder about the the impact of things like social media on on adoption nowadays. It must be so, so difficult. Yeah, I think very much so. One of the judges I was talking to in Birmingham, which when you think about it, is so much bigger than the Isle of Man, said that as far as she was concerned, social media was one of the biggest problems that adoptive children had to cope with and that it was just so easy for children to be traced. And she said sometimes children have very distinctive names, which makes me easier to trace. And although birth families may not try to make contact until maybe the child is at university, it's at a time when the child is already vulnerable in new experiences and maybe having a difficult time. And then approaches are made which destabilise the child. So the parents then, um, of the, the adoptive parents, are they then guided and encouraged to discourage their children that they've adopted to go on to things like social media? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking today about how difficult it is to control our children and dictate what they will do. And uh, certainly, I think one of the things that's being highlighted here and in the UK, that uh, training in use of social media when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate, is absolutely critical.
Do you think we understand enough about the adoption process here in the Isle of Man? I think it's a very hard uh, thing to understand in, in its entirety. It's like saying, do we understand enough about parenting? It's such a huge subject and children have all sorts of different problems. Parents have all sorts of different problems, uh, which is why we need parenting experts like uh, the lady you've just had on before. And um, I think many of us only know what we know about adoption because of our personal experiences. And of course, they may not be typical. And so one of the things the department really wants to do is to open up that whole debate. And on that note, you're listening to Women Today on Manx Radio, 24 minutes past two. Now, a local mother appeared in the mail on Sunday this weekend because of an issue over breastfeeding at the Western Swimming Pool in Peel. In the article, it's claimed Victoria Hodgson's legal right to breastfeed was denied by officials who ran the pool. She has since been awarded damages of £2,000. Well, we asked Mrs Hodgson to come on the programme today, but unfortunately she hasn't been able to this afternoon because one of her children is ill. She has, though, said she will talk to us later in the week. Well, this morning I went to meet Chair of the Western Swimming Pool, Adrian Christian, and asked him to tell me exactly what had happened. July 2014, a lady was in the centre of the uh, small swimming pool and the lifeguard approached her husband to um, ask her to remove herself from the pool. Now, the reason this was, uh, this was done was because at the time she had three other children with her under the age of eight and the lifeguard thought there was a risk um, there at that present time that she couldn't breastfeed a child and safely look after the other three children. So she was asked to leave the pool and um, what happened then? Um, she refused to um, and the lifeguard went and got the manager and the manager came over and again spoke with the family. Now, in the report it would seem that she was asked to leave because she was breastfeeding and this is why this has gone on what for two years now. I mean, what's the whole battle sort of centred on? Yeah, that's pretty much what the battle centred on is um, that she was, she was stating that she was stopped from breastfeeding. No point did we want to stop her from breastfeeding. We definitely think that um, breastfeeding is the best for the baby and we would like to support all mums that come to the pool to be able to breastfeed. But we want to do it in a way where the baby and the mum is safe. And we don't think feeding in the pool is the safest place, um, particularly when there's a risk to a, a, a second child that was under the age of eight. Um, but the policy of the pool is that mums can breastfeed here. But we just want them to do it safely and we just don't think that doing it in the pool is the best. Now, Mrs Hodgson has been awarded £2,000. Um, what was that for then? So Mrs Hodgson um, originally applied for uh, far in excess of that £2,000 with lots of other um, requirements as well, and it's taken this, this long to negotiate. It originally ended up in small claims court, where the judge there sat with us and uh, asked if we could go away and try and negotiate this out of court. The pool took a commercial decision that one or two days in court fighting this case would have cost more than the compensation that we eventually negotiated with Miss Elgin would accept. So the board took a commercial decision to pay the £2,000. Now, Adrian, having read the report in the Mail on Sunday, there were some pretty awful comments quoted in there that were made to Mrs Hodgson and her family. What would you say to those? I'd say, um, certainly as a pool board, we've tried to support, we've always been attentive. I've communicated with Mrs Hodgson directly myself. Um, and the other members of the boards that are quoted in that report um, completely deny that these things have been said. And if anybody's listening, if they are a breastfeeding mother who would probably maybe feel a little bit concerned about coming here if they are feeding their child. What would you say to them now? Shouldn't be concerned. This is a family fun um, swimming pool where we try and uh, um, teach children to swim um, pretty much from birth upwards. Um, the staff are fully trained. Our policy is up to date. And if you wish to come and your 
child falls hungry at the time and you need to breastfeed, the staff will support you in ensuring that you're comfortable and safe in doing that breastfeeding. Even if they're in the pool? We wouldn't recommend that inside the pool it's best to feed the baby because at the end of the day you can imagine the various items that could be in the pool so we would speak with the parent and recommend that that wouldn't be the best place to feed the child. Now Mrs Hodgson has been invited onto the programme unfortunately she couldn't do that today because one of her children is ill. She has said though that she will come on later in the week to give her account of events. It is, by its very nature, an issue which has provoked a great deal of comment. You can see many of those on the Women's Day Facebook page. Um, we have been in touch this morning with the Isle of Man government and asked for their response to this, and they gave us the following statement. The Isle of Man prides itself on being an open, inclusive and tolerant society. The government's policy is to promote equality and respect in the community, and there is an expectation for everyone in public office to uphold those values. The Western Swimming Pool Board and Peel Town Commissioners are independent entities. There is a code of conduct for the island's local authority set out by government. However, any complaints about the conduct of an elected member should be made to the relevant local authority. In the Isle of Man, a person's right to feed a baby in a public area is enshrined in law under the Breastfeeding Act of 2011. Breastfeeding is actively encouraged by the island's health service, which has an ongoing programme to support and educate expectant and new mothers on the many benefits of breast milk for babies. This includes a Breastfeeding Buddies drop-in clinic, an active branch of the Leche League, and a government-backed Breastfeeding Welcome Here scheme where local businesses and organisations proactively display a sticker on their premises to demonstrate that breastfeeding is welcome. The aim is to give women the confidence and encouragement to breastfeed while helping them to feel comfortable and reassured that breastfeeding is perfectly normal and acceptable in public. Now, La Leche League is mentioned there. We have also been in touch with the local branch of the league for their response. And Christy, you've been looking through that. I have. It is a long response, so we're going to put the full um, item on our Facebook page after the show. But just to give you an idea of some of their points in there, uh, with regards to hygiene or contamination fears, uh, they say these are not substantiated by facts. Breast milk does not pose <coughs> any health hazard to swimmers. Even if any breast milk did get into the water, it is amp- antibacterial, antimicrobial, so won't cause any problems. And of course, we all know there are sometimes other things in the water that are probably worse than that. Uh, a baby who has just been breastfed is no more likely to vomit or bring up milk than a baby who has had a formula feed. They also say that, of course, the timings of feeds are not predictable, uh, so you can't necessarily time them uh, in advance uh, of going to the pool. Uh, they also say uh, they believe it was suggested that a baby could be in danger of drowning from ingesting water, but when a baby breastfeeds, his mouth forms a seal around the breast, so it'd be far more likely that a baby would ingest water when swimming in the pool and yet swim Swimming classes for babies are a common activity. And like I say, we will put the rest of their response on our Facebook page. Well, we have also uh, contacted the Southern Swimming Pool and asked for their policy on breastfeeding. And Joe, you've got that for us. Yeah, breastfeeding mothers are welcome at the Southern Pool. However, we do ask that feeding does not take place whilst in the water. Facilities are available anywhere within the swimming pool complex for feeding mums to sit in comfort whilst attending to their child's needs. Feeding whilst in the pool is not allowed in order to protect both the mother and the infant. Whilst every care is taken to ensure all users show consideration for others, there is always the possibility of an experienced swimmer bumping into or splashing other bathers. The steps should be kept clear at all times for easy access and egress. We also request that our parent-child ratio is always respected. We require one adult per two children under the age of eight in order to comply with our safe supervision regulations. If a feeding mum has more than one child in their care arrangements, 
must be made for the supervision care of the other under eight-year-old whilst the mother is feeding. All our regulations are in place to enhance the experience of using the Southern Pool at the same time as ensuring we stay firmly within the industry guidelines. Our staff are always available to help to make your visit to the Southern Pool both enjoyable and safe. So please do not hesitate to ask for assistance if required. As I say, I mean, this is just one of those issues which really does provoke response. Um, we've had a text in from John who says, why feed the baby in the pool? Would you have your lunch in the pool? It's absolute nonsense. Um, it will be interesting to, to speak to Mrs Hodgson herself and hear her account of the events. Um, but Joe, I mean, you looked through the article. I mean, I don't know. What did you think? Difficult one to comment on, really, at this point. Um, I think I prefer to be able to speak to Victoria Hodgson herself, and I think I will pass any comment on at this stage until I have actually spoken to her. Uh, Sarah Jarvis, you were um, a pro-breastfeeding mother yourself. Certainly was, fed all three of mine. Um, I guess maybe the argument is also to go somewhere that's not going to cause a stir I suppose I mean I'm not saying hide yourself away I'm not saying go and scuttle away I'm not going to say be sent off to the loo none of those things I would have been really you know very vehemently anti that um, but in in maybe in the swimming pool I wouldn't have done that no I have to say I mean I, I never fed in the swimming pool I have been to the western swimming pool with my children I did feed them in there and never encountered any problems but we have had a lot of response to this Christy we have and I mean the only thing I would say about it is uh, I've I'm never 100% sure about the uh, direction the Daily Mail always takes, so I would say uh, maybe look at some of the other articles as well. And actually, The Guardian's put an excellent article online, and they start theirs with, the details are disputed. She does claim, so it's very much you know sort of more about being measured, so it's worth looking at that as well. Uh, some of the comments here, uh, Debbie says, after reading the other side of the story, I find it strange that a mother would want to feed her child in the pool with all the germs and chemicals in there, which is interesting. Lisa says, good for this lady for standing up for her rights. Not sure I have done it on the edge of the pool however I recall breastfeeding on the chairs in the middle section of the NSC while watching my others in the pool and nothing has ever been said about that if a child is going to be sick with feeding it's generally after not before and whether done in a cubicle or not it isn't going to stop that and Alison says there are always two sides to every story please remember that yeah just some more comments Jenny says I think it's absolutely fine to breastfeed anywhere and would never think to judge someone for it baby is hungry you feed it but I personally would be concerned at the swimming pool because of the high hygiene issues I would feel a bit like I needed to clean the skin area before feeding if you know what I mean and uh, Sue says I was shouted at by a German woman whilst breastfeeding my daughter beside the swimming pool in Mallorca she told me I was disgusting I looked around to see numerous topless women sunbathing they seemingly weren't disgusting I ignored her just continued to feed my baby is Jane Hall from the Manx Art Directory. Lovely to have you back again, Jane. Thank nice to much. speak with you. Uh, so today, this is the first of our new monthly spots with you. Uh, we will be telling us what's going on in the island's art calendar over the coming months. It has been about six weeks since we had you on the show last time. So uh, before we go on, just remind us a little bit about what the Manx Art Directory is and does. Um, it's just a website at the moment. Um, it has a calendar, so you can see what's on on any given day. Uh, it has a weekly news feed, um, which is a roundup of, of what's happening. And uh, it also has artist pages. Um, each artist has their own page. They have six photographs to showcase their work. It's got contact details, which have got hyper 
hyperlinks so that you can dig through to their own Facebook pages and their own websites. And then there's a bit of a biography and, and some people go for a mugshot as well. Amazing. And just to remind us, you actually have done all of this yourself, haven't you? I have, yes. Which is brilliant. And you said last time you've been inundated with people wanting to take part. Has it grown even more since we spoke to you last time? Absolutely. I'm getting page requests all the time now. So it's, it's really exciting. It's starting to really take off. So brilliant. fingers crossed. And also last time, uh, before, um, it, I think just after you were on last time, it was going to be the newly rebranded what was the WOSAT Festival, which then became the Isle of Man Art Festival. So how did that all go? Oh, it was tremendous. I had such fun. I spent two whole days. I, I planned out a route and uh, took one friend with me one day and we did uh, Laxey and the Douglas in the South. And then the following day, uh, I went off to Peel with my daughter and did that way and, and then up, ending up at Katie Mitchell's on, in Bishop's Court on my way home to Ramsey. But it was absolutely fabulous. The amount of uh, work that went into Um, putting that event on is just you've got to take your hats off to the creative network girls and gentlemen um, because they did a huge amount of work and it was very very successful Um, they had more venues this year than they did in the past they had uh, new people coming on board in particular Noah Bakehouse the Hodgson Loon Gallery the Sale Gallery Studio 42 um, Silverdale Craftworks um, the Isle of Man College market hall um, down at the Douglas Market Hall there near the quay Um, and the Manning Quilters which I absolutely loved I, I didn't even really know there surprised. were quilters on the Isle of Man. But we will be talking more to Jane a little bit later on in the show about what is also coming up on the Isle of Man art scene. But before we do, uh, we'll have a quick look about what's been going on in the news. You will have heard a lot of talk, I'm sure, today about Muirfield Golf Club in Scotland, which, despite having hosted 16 British Opens, finds itself stricken off the list for Golf's Open Championships from this point forward. Organisers the Royal and Ancient took action after the club failed to pass a motion allowing women to join. Joe, what did you think about this one? Oh, do you know what? It blows my mind to think that we are still going back in the dark age where women can't enter into, obviously, um, a certain golf club. I, it really, really irritates me. Um, I'm a huge fan of golf. I love watching it. My son plays it. And I love the approach that we have in the Isle of Man, that there's a huge support for women in golf in the Isle of Man. It is absolutely fantastic over here. And not just women, we're talking younger ones too, girls getting into golf. And I find it very upsetting that, you know, they can't allow Murfield to... Obviously, open up and take women in anymore. I'm, I've grown up with a dad, um, and um, they play golf all the time. In fact, my mum was always labelled as a golfing widow, you know, because he was always on the golf course. He loved the fact that in the old days they'd go to the bar and women weren't allowed in the bar, you know. Whereas now, even his approach has changed. Absolutely, have to get with the times, natural fact, and move on. And I'm so excited and so pleased to see people like Darren Clark, Rory McIlroy, and others just really supporting this as a campaign. Yeah, I think so too. Jane, do you have any thoughts about this one? Um, well, yes, I just think it's uh, quite a shame, really. It's probably a technicality on, you know, what a special resolution is. That I think it had to be 66.6% or something to pass the motion. Um, and, you know, it, it it's just a real shame, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it is a difficult one. I, I fully agree with what you're saying, Joe. fully agree with it. The, the difficulty, is, I suppose, is that we do also have our own women's societies, don't we? And we like to sometimes be separate like this. So it's, you know, sort of, I, I kind of think, well, because it was interesting. Well, like a ladies' listening. gym, do you mean, for instance? Well, possibly that. But then also we have women's societies, women's institute, that kind of thing. And, and we do sometimes demand a separation, whereas, we, you know, we would we sort of almost grate against men who say, well, we want a men's club or we want a men's this. I, I get that. I get that. But not in sport like yeah. literally I think like even netball we're thinking now about more trying to introduce boys playing netball at schools to encourage and I think yes I agree something like the Women's Institute but then you could also say there's the Masons obviously that have the men clubs too yeah. but when it comes to sport it's both sexes all the way except again when it comes to the likes of uh, women's trophies and men's trophies uh, possibly, yeah. And also we've been talking about the, the gender gap as well when it comes to competition level with regards to the money being paid out. I get that. But to actually compete in a sport and to be given a fair chance, it should be both male and female are allowed to go into golf clubs. Yeah. End I suppose of. at the end of the day, if you want to play golf, it has to be done at a club, doesn't it? So, you know, if, you, if you're not allowed in. I, I wonder if there are any women-only golf clubs, are there? There no, must be. there aren't. No, across the country. It well, is then literally that's just... what we need to do, isn't it? <laughs> Women Today Golf Club. Thanks for listening to our best bits of the week. If you missed any of last week's programmes and would like to hear them in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com for seven days after broadcast. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MR Women Today. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.